0: We've sung together this morning how we need the Lord. And Neil has led us in prayer, confessing this need. And as a people of God, we come together confessing that need, and then we're encouraged, and our hearts are comforted by the reality that we serve a Savior who is pleased to meet our needs in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Neil mentioned this morning, we are going to return to John chapter 15. If you'll remember two weeks ago, we were in the first part of John 15 while, while Daniel is away uh, from the pulpit. So we're going back here this morning to John chapter 15. And uh, as you turn there, I'll remind you that, that John 15 is at the, the center of this section of Scripture in John uh, we call the farewell discourse, the farewell teaching. And we call it this because in these few chapters, between chapters 13 and chapter 17, we hear the words of our Lord, his parting words, as it were, to his disciples. He's telling them what he's about to do, namely, he's going to go to the cross where he will give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He tells his disciples it's good for him to go. For when he leaves, he will send his Comforter, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will be with the disciples forever. John 15 begins with the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and the disciples are the branches. True disciples abide in the vine. True disciples bring glory to God by abiding in the vine and, and by bearing much fruit, cognizant of the fact that apart from the vine, they can do nothing. And we come now then to, to John 15 and verse 12. And in verse 12 and following, the Lord continues teaching us about the life of the disciple. We might call this section Living as the Lord's Disciples. How necessary for us this morning to hear these words. For in them we hear beautiful truths. Beautiful truths for the followers of the Lord Jesus. His disciples. And what we see in in verses 12 through 17 is that the Lord's disciples are his friends. Having been Chosen by him and appointed, they love one another, and they go and bear fruit. So I would invite you to stand with me in honor of God. We're going to read his word together, John 15, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. These things I command you so that you will love one another. may be seated. Lord, we confess to you this morning our great need for you. And we rest knowing that you are delighted to give us good things, to teach us, to give us understanding. And so that's our prayer this morning. Will you help us to know you more fully? Change us. Make us like Christ, our Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. His word to us as his people. And here in this passage is is instruction for us. In these few verses we've just read together, there are several things. We learn who we are. What we are to do. And how we're able to do what we've been called to do. How necessary for us. How good it is for us. We need to know who are we? What are we doing? How are we going to do what we've been called to do? These are important questions for us to have answers for. And we find the answers to those questions in the text we have before us. We learn how to live as the Lord's disciples. The Lord's disciples, as I've said, the Lord's disciples are his friends. Having been chosen by him, they love one another and they go and bear fruit. We're going to divide this section of scripture into three sections, three portions We'll consider the first one under this heading, The Lord's command to his disciples, love one another. The Lord's command to his disciples, love one another. You'll notice that verse twelve and verse seventeen are very similar. They serve as bookends of sorts for this passage. They both contain this command to, to love one another. The disciples to whom Jesus was speaking are not left wondering what it is that they're supposed to do. Instead, they've been given clear instruction. In fact, this is not the first time the Lord Jesus has told them this. We go back just to the end of chapter 13 where he says to them, This is my commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the mark of the disciple of Christ. As others watch the lives of believers, they conclude, these love Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus, we might say, is to love There was a lawyer that came to Jesus, and he asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our love for God is is manifested, is made known, is evidenced by our love for one another. This is what the Lord is teaching us here. In other words, we know that we love God if we love one another. So here Jesus' command is clear. My command is that you love one another. But he doesn't stop there. He continues Love one another as I have loved you. Here we're given specifics to this command. Jesus is the standard and the example of love. We learn by example. Do we not? We imitate what we see. It, it, it may be kind of a, an entertaining thing for us to, to ask several, several young people, ten-year-olds, for example. If we called five ten-year-olds up here and asked us, "Teach us, teach us how to tie your shoes," we would see this. Each of them would bend down and, and start tying their shoe, and I'm confident each of them would attain the goal, getting the shoe tied. But we would likely notice that each of them is tying that shoe just a little bit different. And the reason they're doing so is because they've been taught. Someone's taken the time to teach that little one how to tie the shoe. This is one example of many. A mom teaches the young ones Here, here's how you fold a t shirt, here's how you tie a tie. Big picture. Here's what hard work looks like. We learn by example. And Jesus is instructing his disciples, love as I have loved. Look to me as the example. Jesus is is the highest standard, the greatest example of love. Indeed, no higher standard and, and no higher aim No greater example could be given than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As I have loved you. You hear this comparative kind of language. We see this as we read through the scripture. We we, we see the biblical writers using this kind of comparative language as they give instruction. Ephesians chapter 4, you go to verse 32 and it says, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or, you keep going in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's this comparative language. This, This standard is being set for us. Love as Christ loved. So here's a word for us this morning. As God's people, we are to look to Christ as our example. Here is what love looks like. We aren't to turn inwardly first to determine this is love, nor are we to look primarily to our culture to say this is what love is. Rather, we are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ to determine this is love. How has Christ loved his disciples? He loved them sacrificially by laying down his life. This is the point that we see in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life. He offered himself as the supreme sacrifice for those he came to save. He died in our place. Listen to the words of the Apostle John as he wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Ah, here is love. How the Lord loves us. He loves us sacrificially he laid down his life Jesus also loves his disciples selflessly to be selfless is to set aside your own ambitions to set them aside for the sake of others it's esteeming others better than yourself selflessness is this it's setting aside the self this is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ did. The eternal Son of God did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to for advantage, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, and he obeyed to the point of death on the cross. In the supreme act of selfless, sacrificial love, Jesus bore our sin and our shame. He bore our shame. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. He wasn't concerned about himself. Instead, he willingly was humiliated. He was mocked, beaten, Stripped of his clothing, falsely accused, and publicly shamed. There's something especially humiliating about experiencing pain in front of others. We can see this from the youngest age. A little one hurts himself, and he runs and, and hides his face in mom's shoulder. Fears Shame. We grow up, and we, too, fear shame. We fear being exposed. We don't want others to see our weaknesses. Jesus willingly took on the weakness of humanity and was publicly shamed in our place. He bore our shame. Not only was He exposed before those who mocked and ridiculed and beat Him, but He was exposed before the eyes of the Father. As He hung on the cross, the shame of our sins was accounted to Him, and He suffered selflessly in our place. That's how Christ loves. Sacrificially, selflessly. He who is omniscient, the one who knows all, he knew every sin we would commit and chose to love us anyway. He knew every thought and intention of our heart. He knew our propensity to exalt ourselves He knew of our ingratitude and our grumbling disposition in spite of this copious amounts of grace and mercy that we consume on a daily basis. He knew of our self-righteousness and our greed, our anger, our lust and pride and its million manifestations. He knew it all and yet he selflessly died in our place. That's how Christ loves us. Lest we ever doubt the love that Christ has for us. Brothers and sisters, may I submit to you that when we doubt the love of Christ, it's evidence that our understanding of the love of Christ is anemic, it's thin. And so, what do we do with this? We go back to the Savior. We go back to His Word. And we ask the Lord, Help me to believe. Help me to believe you love me. We're commanded to love one another as Christ loved us. How do we do this? Because if we're honest, we recognize our absolute inability to love like the love we've just described. How do we carry out this command? We do this, first of all, by remembering that we are loved. As I have loved you. Abide in the vine. Abide in the vine. We fix our gaze on our beloved Savior And we drink deeply from the living water that he supplies. We bask in the beauty of his grace. We believe the gospel. Christ has cleansed me. And he cleanses me day after day after day. We come back to this well that never runs dry. Christ, my advocate. Christ sustains me. Christ will not leave me. We draw near to him. We sing to him. Is there any better antidote for the weary, downcast soul than to lift your voice to the living Christ? Sing to him. Worship him. Draw near to him. The fruit of this abiding with Christ then is is love love for one another it's the outworking it's the overflow perhaps a simple analogy will help us this morning imagine you you fill a pot with water and you're you're preparing to make some something for dinner and so you turn the the stove on and you watch the burner glow red-hot and you take the water and set it on the burner and you know what happens After some time, the little bubbles start to form at the bottom of the pan, and they start to rise and rise. And as the heat increases, those bubbles start to rise faster and faster until they reach the top and they burst into a boil. It's amazing to me how quickly this happens. You remove the pot from the burner, and it stops boiling pretty quickly. But you move it back to the heat source, and it begins to bubble and boil. This is a little picture of us abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, we commune with him. And the love that we experience from our Savior bubbles over. It boils over, boils out of our lives and we demonstrate love for one another. The deeper we go into the love of Christ, the greater our love for one another. We imitate Christ by sacrificially and selflessly loving one another. Very practically, this this may take the form of, of how we think about time and one another. The love of Christ compels us to say, I have time for you. I want to listen to you. I'm concerned about what's going on in your life sacrificial selfless love looks like moving toward others moving out of our comfort zone initiating conversations with our brothers and sisters it looks like taking an interest in other people it may look like talking less listening more how are you doing tell me about your family Very tangibly on Sunday mornings, we have the opportunity to welcome people into our church regularly. Love compels us to move toward them selflessly. We're not concerned about ourselves and preserving a reputation. We're concerned about demonstrating the love of the Savior, the one who loves us sacrificially. And so the Lord gives this command to his disciples, love one another. He doesn't stop there, however. He gives comfort. The Lord's comfort to his disciples. You are my friends. As beings created in the image of God, we have the capacity to appreciate beauty. We love to be in awe, to be overwhelmed, Think about some of the videos that that go viral. We're we're amazed as we watch people doing things that we didn't know were possible. Musicians and athletes and artists of all kinds doing these things that cause us to be amazed. Is this not why people go to the Grand Canyon or to Niagara Falls? They love to be amazed. Amazed in awe. I was up early this past week and noticed the moon. It was amazing. You could just see this outline of, of the whole moon set against this dark sky and then there was a little sliver of brightness. And it just shone out into the darkness. I thought, this, this is beautiful. This is God did that. We love to be in awe, to be overwhelmed by beauty. And I wonder if we've slowed down to be amazed, to stand in awe of the reality that we have been called into a relationship with the living God, God. The one who speaks a word and creation jumps into existence. Whose voice thunders like the roar of many waters. Who is of purer eyes than to see evil. Who looks on the mountains and they smoke. Who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Are we amazed at the reality of relationship with God that's possible through our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe? He's a God of covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God, one who delights in relationship with his people. And here, the comfort for the disciples is this. We are his friends. How might one know If you're a friend of Christ, please look with me at verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We could say that the evidence that a person is a friend of God is if this person obeys God. Obedience to God is evidence that a person is a friend. But note very carefully. Obedience, obedience is not the ground for the relationship, but the evidence of the relationship. This distinction is of great importance. The ground of the relationship, the foundation, the roots we might say, the root of the relationship is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, not by your obedience are you saved, but by grace. By grace. Another way to say this is that we do not obey in order to become friends. Rather, obedience is the evidence of our friendship. And so we can say, we know if we are friends of God, if we obey his commands. John has already written, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Obedience flows out of relationship. And obedience looks like loving one another. To be called a friend of the Lord Jesus is remarkably significant. How is it possible that the sinless Son of God calls us mere mortals, His friends? Christ has made it possible. Christ has made it possible by taking our sins upon Himself, paying the penalty that our sins deserve, rising from the grave and ascending into heaven giving to us, imputing to us his perfect righteousness as a gift of grace. We're now counted as his friends. Friendship speaks of closeness of relationship. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This relationship of of master-servant that's depicted here is not one marked by closeness, not one marked by, by friendship. It's more of a contract. This is what I say. This is what you do. You don't ask questions. I, your master... I feel no sense of compulsion to tell you why I'm telling you to do such a thing. You simply do it. You as my servant obey me. And Jesus says, no longer. You're my friends. Friendship speaks of a close relationship. Jesus told his disciples what he heard from the father. He had told them, I'm going away. But I will send the comforter. He will come. He will be with you forever. He told them his father was preparing a place for them for all eternity. He told them not to fear. As friends of Christ, the disciples weren't missing any information. They were given exactly what they needed to know. Jesus didn't withhold anything from his disciples. He called them friends. Therefore, today, we don't need to wonder if we're missing any information. The Lord Jesus has given us what we need to know. We have his divine revelation in this book. The scriptures are sufficient to teach us what we need to know about God. how to love Him, how to serve Him, what our purpose is. We have the truth. We might say as friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in the know. We know the truth. Furthermore, we're, we're intimately known by the Savior. He knows us. This means we we no longer need to hide. Think about our earthly friendships as an analogy here. One of the things that marks true friendship is is a sense of openness, vulnerability. We count those as true friends who know us best and love us still. Jesus Christ, the Lord, knows us best and loves us still. We don't need to pretend before him. Pretend that we've got it all together. Pretend that we're not struggling. Pretend that we aren't fearful. Rather, we come to him, confessing our sins and our our weaknesses to him, our fears, And as friends of Christ, we we bring our cares to Him. It's right for us to pause and ask what are the things that we're facing that we've been reluctant to bring to our Savior? Does the uncertainty of the economy have you concerned? Lack of stability in a job? Your physical body the pains you're working through strain in relationship pressure you feel to keep up and we do this battle in our head I know I should be doing this but I'm not and therefore I'm going to try to fix this before I come to my Lord the Lord calls us to come to him to cast our cares on him He's glorified in this. Cast your cares upon him. He calls us his friends. May we be a people who pour out our hearts to the Savior and believe his word when he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Be comforted by this glorious reality. Jesus has given his command To his disciples, love one another. He's given them comfort. You are my friends. Lastly, let's consider the Lord's commission to his disciples. Go and bear fruit. We've learned who we are. Loved by God. Friends of Christ. Here in verse 16, we learn what we're called to do. But before giving instruction to what the disciples are called to do, before giving this commission, Jesus sets the record straight, as it were. In case you were wondering, disciples, let me make it clear, you did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you. The teacher teaching, choosing the disciple was the opposite of what was common in this time. It was a well-known saying that said, provide yourself with a teacher. The teacher, the student, was to seek out the teacher, not vice versa. Jesus breaks with this contemporary custom by choosing the disciples. The reason these, these disciples were in the place with the Lord Jesus Christ was not because they were smarter, more gifted, wealthier than others, The reason they were there in that place is because the Lord chose them. We see something similar in God's choosing of the nation of Israel. We go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is the way of the Lord. We see this in Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He calls us and appoints us I'll say two things briefly about this doctrine of of God's choosing. The first is that this doctrine should produce deep humility. Deep humility. As the Lord God said to the Israelites, so he says to the saints throughout the ages, I love you because I love you. There's nothing inherently good in us Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our natural propensity to boast is stripped from us by this doctrine. Produces humility. But second, it emboldens us for service It emboldens us. Look again at verse 16. The disciples were chosen and appointed. They had a task to fulfill. And that task was to go and bear fruit. For this task they had been appointed by God. They were appointed to proclaim the gospel. And as such they must remember that their strength to go and do that did not lie from within themselves but outside of themselves the strength of the Lord. He had called them, appointed them. Consider the end of Matthew's gospel. We often refer to this as the Great Commission. The Lord says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with his people. He has sent his Holy Spirit to take up residence in the hearts of His people, equipping us to do the things He has appointed us to do, namely, to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. What hinders us from this? What hinders us from boldly proclaiming the gospel to our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers? As we think about kingdom work, what hinders us? Could we not say that Viewing a situation or an opportunity from our perspective is, is daunting and may indeed hinder us. In other words, I'm I'm hindered in my proclamation of the gospel when I view kingdom work merely from the place of what I know about myself and my abilities, or better said, my lack of ability, rather than from the place, from the place of what the Lord has said is true. He's chosen me and appointed me for this work. Not only has God appointed me, but he's he's called me into the closest of relationship. He calls me his friend. The Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated the supreme act of love by giving his life. In so doing, he reconciled man to God and God to man. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ The God of the universe calls his disciples, his beloved, his friends. He's appointed us to go and to bear fruit, proclaiming the gospel. The apostles to whom he wrote were appointed to a specific task. They were to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in a very real sense, each of us has been appointed to proclaim the gospel. We're to proclaim the gospel in the spheres in which we find ourselves. We are gospel people. The love of Christ controls us. And so, after reading these words here in John's gospel this morning, we know who we are. We're friends of Christ. We know what we we are to do. We're to love one another. We're to proclaim him. And we know how we're able to do this. He's with us. He's given us of himself. We keep our eyes fixed on him. We abide in him we're strengthening strengthened by remembering that we've been chosen and appointed for his service and so with joy we live as his disciples let's pray together lord we praise you for your great plan of salvation that you would call us to yourself people who were running from you serving ourselves and you came you gave us new hearts You gave us your spirit. You put your word in our mouth. And so as we leave here, we pray that we would be people who are bold and humble as we proclaim you to those who don't yet know you. And as we love one another, we pray that our testimony would be to the world. We are your disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.